Welcome back to season two. Um, sitting here with Bob Cording. Bobby, how you how doing? How are you? I'm blessed, brother. How Living a dream, man. Living a dream. Living a dream. Yep. Uh, our special guest today uh, is a gentleman by the name of Joe Carroll. Um, I've known Joe for the last four years. Was captivated uh, the first time I met him. Heard his story. Uh, when I met him, he was a BHT um, at another behavioral health agency. And he has since moved to Buena Vista. He's been here for a little over a year now. And the impact this gentleman makes um, in the milieu is uh, next level. Uh, Joel, how you doing, brother? I'm blessed, man. Yes, Great you are. Here. Yes, Thank you, you are. For sure. So, Joel, you wrote, the, you, you wrote this book, uh, The Book of Joel. I did. I, uh, cool thing is, when I got into the behavioral health field, I needed to get a fingerprint clearance card because you're working with vulnerable individuals, adults or children. And I had so many charges that I had accumulated committing crimes that I had to write summaries on every crime I ever committed, even if I was not convicted. Right. 2015, I decided, you know what? My daughter just came to visit me in Tucson after over a decade, and I just did pretty good, not knowing a computer, but I think, I can do this book thing. People have been asking me to do it for years. So I did. I wrote the book of Joel, Cunning, Baffling, and Powerful. Where can you find it? You can find my book at Barnes & Nobles, Fulton Books out of Pennsylvania, Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and it is currently being recorded right now on Audible from an amazing gentleman from uh, the Washington, D.C., Virginia area where I grew up. So the Book of Joel is also on ebook on all those major platforms. And uh, please, please, please read it. If you're a loved one of an addict, read it. It will open your mind to have understanding on how the addict thinks and the, and, and the reasoning on why we continue to struggle with the addiction. Uh, also, for the addict that is trying to find recovery and find peace, this is a guide. The, the last four chapters are a guide to what you can do, what you have to do, but what you can do to change your life for the things that worked in my life and in my recovery, which still are working for me today. And just for the casual reader, if you want to be inspired by a true life uh, uh, story, this is, it is what it says. It's, it's very cunning. This book is cunning, it's baffling, and it is extremely powerful um, from the, the darkest of days to the, to the bright, the darkest of nights to the brightest of days. Like, I was going to take my life, and here I am, a published, a published author. So, Joe, I, w I want to hear a little bit about your story, man. Let's start, um, let's start chapter one. Like what's, who, 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 who was Joel in the midst of his, uh, what started your childhood, Joel? Um, your journey into um, what led you down the path of recovery. Let's, 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 let's hear it. So my father was military. I was born in Phoenix. My mother and father are high school sweethearts from Mesa High. And I had an older sister. And uh, we moved from Mesa to Northern Virginia. From Northern Virginia, we moved to Europe. And Europe was amazing. Uh, I played soccer there. I was the only American on all uh, Dutch team. 
And then I was in a commercial in Amsterdam, went skiing in the Alps of Austria. So it was really cool. Uh, some of the things that I remember most about Europe in that time was I started stealing at the age of six. And that's when I started to learn what adrenaline felt like as a child when my mother wasn't home and my father was traveling TDY and the buddies in the neighborhood had guilders, the, the Dutch money, to go buy candy at a little Dutch shop and I didn't have guilders. I remember sneaking back into that little candy shop, reaching into the candy jars and taking candy from my own. And I got a rush. I got a huge rush from that. Um, I remember when the kids in the neighborhood wouldn't play with me anymore because I was started stealing at the age of six, I started going around and doing things on my own and being curious. So I would like grab, steal my mom's lighter, and I remember setting a woman's uh, carport on fire. And uh, I didn't do that again because it hurt me. I burned myself, but I was very curious as a child. And um, one of the, the more the darkest things I remember from my childhood was in 1986, 1985, um, we lived by a little cemetery, and it was very old, and it was creepy, and every time we walked to the bus stop, I would feel a presence pulling me, um, and I would think, you know, well, I hear about this Friday the 13th thing and a full moon thing, and I was born on Friday the 13th on a full moon back in October of 78. And I didn't really think nothing uh, too much about it until I had like legit dom uh, demonic presence in my home when my father was traveling. And I freaked out and um, I screamed for my mom and I, I ran down the hallway throwing up. I peed the bed and it looked like a, a, a dead man's head but it was on hooves. And I was pinching myself to see if it was a dream but it was not a dream, it was legit, it was real. And the next day, I was uh, on the bus going to talk to my best friend, Michael. Because I, I felt like everybody would tell me I'm crazy, you're a weirdo at school. So the only person I was really going to tell was him. But unfortunately, when I waved to him off the bus that day, before I could tell him, uh, a few hours after I got home, my mom told me that he passed away after he got off the bus. So he was allergic to bees. And when he was outside playing, he picked up a juice and he drank it and there was a bee in it and it went in his throat and he died in his, in his driveway, in his front yard. So very traumatic for me. Um, I just saw a demonic entity. The first chapter of my book from the book of Joel is 16 hours. And in 16 hours, I had a demonic entity in my room with me that was real. And my best friend, Michael, passed away. Uh, his name is Matthew in the book. And that was within 16 hours. And I was very... Um, afraid. I had a lot of questions about life. I'm a very deep thinker. Uh, 42 years old, I, I still am. I'm a very, very, very deep thinker. And uh, after that, I started seeing shadows. Um, I don't feel it's a mental illness at all. I just think that some individuals are able to see things that other individuals, humans, are not able to see or feel situations unraveling in real time as they're coming about and that was both a blessing and a curse for me throughout my life so that was very um, traumatic for me as a child and then we moved back to Phoenix what age 
at the age of, this is 1987, so I was 9, 10, 11 years old. We moved back to Phoenix for three years. My father was stationed back in Phoenix. And um, second chapter is called A Rage Within. A very small guy. You know, people think I'm 20 years old, 25, maybe 29 years old at the most. Very small, very teeny. All my girlfriends were bigger than I was. Definitely all my buddies were much bigger than I was. And I got picked on a lot because I had buck teeth, a rat tail. People call me can opener, beaver boy. I mean, it got to me, but the more it happened, you know, the more I just let it slide off my back until people wanted to fight me. And uh, I got in a fight at a, at a golf course on the 111th in Indian school, after school, by ice cream truck. And I tried to pull the Karate Kid move because that was my favorite movie back in the day. Everybody laughed at me. There was about 50, 60 kids in a big circle. And the kid that wanted to, you know, beat me up, he ran at me. I went to go do the Danny LaRusso to his face, and I fell. That's when everybody made fun of me. And I blacked out. And I just remember my buddies pulling my backpack and dragging me through the, uh, the fairway. And I, I glanced and looked up, and he was on the ground. He wasn't moving. And the police came to the school the next day, and they said that, I picked up a painted rock off the tee off green and I, I just went to town on them. And to this day, I don't remember that. But that's something that I still deal with all these years later. You're talking you know, 30, almost 33 years later. Um, it's called intermittent explosive disorder where you're really cool, you're chill, you're the most kind, polite individual on the planet until something just triggers you and you snap and it's straight blackout mode. Um, so those are some things that you know, as a child, you know, those things I just spoke about was only up until I was 10. I was still stealing things at that time. My mom was like, he's an angel. You know, my, my little boy's an angel. Um, very kind. Never bullied anybody in my life. They, they bullied me. And I would still try to be nice to them. And then when they wouldn't stop, I would snap. And then I almost... Killed one of his friends the next day after school when they bullied me again after the police left the school for the first incident. I just wanted to leave me alone. They wouldn't leave me alone. So I punched through a window and pulled him out of the window. The glass was shattered everywhere, and I tried to put glass through his head. You know, and police are at my house the, the, the next day. My father's traveling again. He's never there. You know, I'm just a kind kid. I love sports. I love the Phoenix Suns growing up. You know, sports is my life. And uh, when things get to me a certain way, I should say got to me a certain way, I did not know how to handle those situations at all. Because at that age, you don't know, you know what a mental illness is. You don't, parents don't want to believe that your child has anything wrong with them. And it's not to be talked about in that home. You know, so those are the first two chapters of my life up to 10 years old. You, know, you got rage, you got seeing shadows. Death already at a young age, questioning God. I, I heard of God. I heard of his son, you know, Jesus Christ. When I tried to pray at a young age in Europe, there was no light shining down on my bed. There was no big voice saying, hey, I'm God. There was nothing. Mm -hmm. So I didn't understand. Very confused as a child. But uh, I was always a nice person. Very kind. Very kind. So where did you go after, after you left Phoenix? Went back to Virginia. My father was stationed at the Pentagon, Northern Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C., a completely different culture. Depressed, anxious, 
moving again. I have friends, build a little life for myself, and on the drop of some colonel's, you know, decision, my dad comes home and says, pack your stuff, we're leaving. So very depressed, uh, very anxious, the fear of the unknown, will I fit in? And this happened numerous times, moving around, you know, will I feel, fit in? Um, will I be good at sports around these people? And I went there and I was collecting baseball, basketball, football cards. I could break down statistics with any adult in the world. I watched Sports Center as a child. And sports became my greatest coping mechanism. <clears throat> I'm playing AAU basketball, because I can play, and uh, playing boys and girls club ball, predominantly black neighborhoods up there. And uh, before I went to high school, life was fantastic. The best time of my life, I was 12. 12 years old was the best year of my life. And my parents decided to move to a new home where we had two acres, beautiful countryside home in Virginia. Problem with that for me was there was no neighbors out there. And um, that summer, Prince William County changed the school zoning. So anybody that lived, let's say, west of our, the neighbors closest to us down the road, where their mailboxes were, had to go to, got to go to Woodbridge High School where my sister, my older sister was going, and all my friends were about to go, and anybody that lived in my new home and to the other side had to go to a different portion of the city to Garfield High School. And my parents tried to talk to the county and to let me go with my sister and all my friends from Lake Ridge Middle, and they said, no, you know, your daughter can continue to go there because she was already enrolled in this school last year but your son is not able to do that. Crushed, depression, anxiety, lost, everything I had created in my life again, sports, everybody went to that school except for me, and I ended up going to Garfield where that changed my life forever. That ended up being a huge turning point in my life. And I was outclassed on the baseball field, I was outclassed on the basketball court, I was outclassed, couldn't even play, football wasn't even an option, I already dislocated my jaw playing street football. and. Um, that depressed me even more so. So I ended up, uh, when I got to high school, I ended up reaching into my parents' liquor cabinet. When they went to work, my father went to the Pentagon, my mother went to, to the bank, and I pulled out their large bottle of liquor. I poured it into a cup. I went to my, my mom's ashtray, picked up a bunch of half-smoked Marlboro 100s, put them in a little baggie, walked to that little dirt road where those mailboxes were that decided which schools I was going to go to. And I took my first swig. And that first swig went for 17 years, full-blown alcoholism. And I started smoking that morning as well. And that changed my life, I thought, for the best. Because I'd seen my parents drink for decades. And they would party when they weren't working. And as soon as I got on that bus, I was a different person. As soon as I took that swig, I went in there and I was no longer shy. I was talking to all the girls. I was just 10 foot tall, you know, as a, as a five foot, 80 pound kid going to a high school where it looked like grown men and, and, and women were walking around. I felt like I was bigger than they were. And that became a huge thing. And um, still playing basketball, we had a Rec center down the street from our home, so I'd dribble my ball about a mile down the road, dribble back. Everything was cool. I'd play ball. I was good. I wasn't great, but I was good. And I saw these men playing on the full court. 
and I would sit on the bleachers and I would watch them and I would sit back and be like, man, these are the only kind of individuals you see in the movies. You know, they're respected, there's beautiful women coming in, bringing food to them. Young men were coming in, giving them handshakes, showing their allegiance. I would just watch them. And one day when I left, I, I dribbled my ball back home and I took my shoes off at the door and I looked on the couch and two of those men that were on that court were sitting on my parents' uh, couch talking to my, my mother and my father, my sister. My sister ended up dating one of those men and chapter three of my book is because they were gangsters. And uh, the gentleman that my sister was dating was very respected, very violent man in the DC metropolitan area and he never wanted me to get affiliated. I started meeting more people that I would take to him that I felt that were killers. And the more I drank and the more I smoked pot, the more I, I started meeting other people and got in a relationship with a beautiful girl from West Philly. Started making a name for myself because I was bringing young men to that specific gang, which is very large. My sister's boyfriend gave me an alias. And that alias is Omen, O-M-E-N. That's chapter four of my book, Omen. Once he gave me that alias without wanting me to get affiliated, it changed my life because I was born on Friday the 13th on a weekend of a full moon, seeing shadows, see a demonic entity. Bad things happen around me. I snap. Things, bad things happen if I'm uncomfortable. Best friend died at the age of seven. Like This is all like the definition of omen. And it's like a, a prophetic balance between good and evil. I'm a Libra. So I like really read into that stuff, even though I'm not into astronomy. But I was like, wow, this is, this is, this is pretty you know, cool. And uh, kept putting in work, kept putting in work. Still drinking in high school, smoking, start smoking formaldehyde. You drive across the bridge to D.C. and dip some cigarettes into this formaldehyde, start smoking that. Started getting pretty violent as a little guy, just trying to prove to people that I'm not leaving your neighborhood. Instead of going home to mom and dad, loving home, wood in the fireplace, good cooked meal, nice home, clean, everything that you could want as a child. Love, support. Just felt like I, I wanted something else. I wanted to make a name for myself. As little as, little as I was, doing it on the, the baseball diamond, the basketball court, football field, soccer anymore, like I, I, needed, I felt like I needed to go elsewhere to get noticed. And the anger got the best of me when I was trying to put my name out there. I had guns pulled on me in uh, Dale City. When I was at my girlfriend's house in her neighborhood, I had a gun put in my mouth. I had another gun put to my uh, forehead. I um, had a teacher one time in, in the hallway at Garfield when I had a hoodie on. She didn't want me to have a hoodie on. She didn't know I had headphones on, so when she grabbed it, it kind of choked me with my headphones, and I didn't, I, I didn't even think. I just grabbed her by the forehead, and I smashed her skull against the bricks. And it was an old lady, you know, that was somebody's grandmother, and I was like, man, there's something still, you know, wrong with me, but I didn't realize the drinking was not helping me at all. It was actually fueling what was going on inside without it being addressed, and then you start smoking formaldehyde, trying to show show off and make a name for myself because I got this beautiful female here. Um, I think I'm like some pretty big stuff without being cocky about it. 
I'm like, I'm, I'm starting to get like real deep into this lifestyle. I'm not going to run out there and be too loud about it. But there's some underlying issues here if I'm like hurting a teacher. Uh, I assaulted another kid in, in our classroom because he was disrespectful to another guy that was in the gang that I was trying to be affiliated with, become affiliated with. And I, I, I injured him severely. Um, he was in a hospital for a while. And uh, just kept on going from there. And eventually I became affiliated without my sister's boyfriend being there. And I took a pounding. I've been called tenacious a lot of times because I just I hyper-focus on what I want. And uh, that day that I got affiliated, became affiliated, I definitely got what I signed up for after that day. I definitely got what I signed up for that day because all hell was unleashed on my life for, for decades after that. When did you get jumped into the gang? What age? I think it was 95, 1995, so 78, 16, I was about two years into my, my addiction. Went from out of high uh, pot and drinking. I was no longer going home after school. My parents thought I was a the good boy that was going to play basketball and all that, but I was at my girlfriend's house, and I started hanging around guys that were becoming initiated, and I just started hanging out, making a name for myself. You know, people were getting killed on those streets. There's a number of times in this book where death was staring at me without me seeing it, and then 10 minutes later, somebody was dead, you know, right where I was standing. Or I was going to reach out for a door, and something said, don't ring that doorbell. And I turn on the news the next morning, and there's a pile of bodies in a bathtub, naked. And I was just with those people. You know, and uh, it hurt oh, so see how, all that. How long was it before you got into, like, into some real trouble and, you know, got thrown? Got so I up? ended up. When did you catch your first felony? You know, like when did you really get the first time you got Trying to be cool. Uh, with some OGs that I was staying with, and he had some stolen cars out of Detroit that they were buying off the car lot for cheap. And I started driving around the D.C. area, picking up girls, dropping girls off, being all cool. And I guess the detectives were watching us because they, they pulled up on me real quick. And I was going to do a high-speed chase, initiate a high-speed chase. And they put a gun to me when my, one of my homies got out. And I was about to hit the gas, and there was already a gun in my head to say, get out. So I got incarcerated for that. I never told on anybody about that situation. The people that were getting the cars actually left. They took off thinking I might have told because I was so young, and I didn't. And they all came back, and I was definitely blessed for that. 1999, after some uh, people that are very close to me, they were found murdered, taken down to different states. Their bodies weren't found for months. I dealt with that by using, continuously using. Um, I had a little girl in 1999. I had two females call me the same night saying they were pregnant with my child. Within 10 minutes. 10 minutes after they made that phone call, it was a home invasion. And I was a victim. What'd that look like? It was bad. I'd already been back to Arizona. I got kicked out of school. My parents sent me to Arizona. I came out here, Apache Junction. My grandparents opened their home to me, give me a new life, try to save me from things that I've done. 
and I ended up stealing their guns and other things, went around Phoenix shooting stuff up. So this was after Virginia? This is during high school. Right. Yep. And I uh, came to Tucson, started doing methamphetamine at a very young age. Game changer. With some wild people. And then my uncle ended up being connected to these people. And somebody ended up going missing for that because my uncle found out I was doing dope out here with some people that he knew. And he wasn't pleased with those individuals. That was a that was evil drug. That was a that was a very evil drug, and I knew it immediately from everything that already happened in my life. And I'm a very deep thinker, and I can see things and hear things. I just I felt the negativity with methamphetamine. Let's get into that a little bit, man. Yeah, it was it was very, very evil. So, how old were you when you when you first started doing meth? Ninety-seven. Ninety-seven. So twenty. Mm-hmm. Nineteen twenty. How long did that last? Not long that time because of situations that were going on in this neighborhood down the street here in Tucson. I felt things, bad things were going to happen to me because bad things were happening to those people. And it closed in quick. That black cloud and that dark web of methamphetamine, it closed in so quick on my life that I packed my stuff in that apartment complex and I was asked to, I asked somebody to drive me to Scott Harbor Airport so I could get back to Baltimore and D.C. And I was up three, four days at that point when I landed back home on the East Coast. Very strange, and I was a teeny little guy. I couldn't afford to lose any more weight, and that was the last time I did meth for a, a very long time. Um, it wasn't a big thing on the East Coast yeah. during that time, and I uh, went to the National Guard, 1998, cleaned up a little bit. Went to Virginia Army National Guard. I worked at a restaurant. Life was good. My parents let me stay back in their home. Couldn't stop using. They discharged me. My parents kicked me out. I went back to being homeless. And I was traveling with bands in the D.C. area, hooking up equipment, so I always had places to go. And because I did not stand firm on being a young man and and listening to those suggestions from my military father and my cousin in Scottsdale, who was at war in the 90s, Desert Storm and was working at Casa Grande for the Army National Guard and he was suggesting you know change your life because I didn't stop using they kicked me out I was at a club one night and I got hit in the head at the club with the police smack light and it broke my skull and I had a stroke the hospital because there were so many gang members in the hospital that night they didn't do anything for me but shave my head in that spot, stitched my skull up, and just sent me on my way. They didn't do any CAT scans. They didn't do any MRIs. They didn't send me away with paperwork. They just kind of kicked me out onto the streets, and that's when I started doing um, cocaine. I was so, so much pain. You know, in the wintertime out there in the D.C. area of Virginia, I started putting cocaine on my weed drinking moonshine. I was getting a, a gallon of moonshine for 10 bucks. It was still warm out of the basement. I had family that still loved me. My mom was praying for me. My dad was just baffled that I couldn't get it together. Grandfather was military, assistant warden over at Florence Prison up north here in Arizona for years, very respected by the prisoners. MP, my father was military police, boxer, sports, and then 
wanted everything the, be the best for me and my sister. But these things that just continued to happen to me. And then you have a hospital not take care of me when something traumatic like that happens. I just lost trust in everybody. In 1999, I had those two females call me, say they were pregnant. The home invasion happened when I was selling crack cocaine. And um, I dodged a bullet of death. That next night when we were looking for them, those two men came back to my buddy's house. And they tried to jump on my buddy, but my buddy had three of our friends from Puerto Rico there with them. And they ended up sending those guys to the hospital. And those two gentlemen went to prison. So I dodged a bullet that night. I went to Fort Belvoir Army Hospital to see the first child born. Ended up not being my kid at all. And then my daughter, Sienna, who will be 22 this month, she was born at Bethesda, Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland, and I didn't make it to, to see her born. And that was just the karma for me not doing right. I'm going to go see this child born that's not mine. I'm going to miss the one that ended up being my daughter. And her mom was like, you need to... You need to help out. You need to help out. You need to help out. I'm traveling with the bands. I'm sleeping with multiple women. I'm just thinking I'm going to get it together, but could just never just get it. And peer pressure is real. You know, just drink this, bro. Smoke this, man. We're going to be good. We got you. We're going we're gonna to get you a side job. We're going to do this. So I did that for a long time. And I couldn't hear her anymore saying, you know what? I need diapers, I need baby wipes, I need this, I need that, I need this. It just became just noise to me. Man, 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 man. It irritated me, and I had two Gs come up to me and said, we're going to do a jury store heist. And I didn't trust one of them. I never did, even though we were affiliated. And they, they confronted me one more time, and she just got off the phone with me. I need help. We need help. We need you in our lives. I didn't want to hear it. I went and got a scream mask from that movie Scream. I got a bunch of dark clothes got some new boots and some baseball gloves, and I dressed up, and I ran up in there, and I pulled off a jewelry store heist. So I thought until um, the female that was our lookout was on our Nextel phone saying the police are out here, and uh, I escaped, and I went to Florida the next day where I was doing crank, a lot of crank, sleeping with multiple women, passing uh, sexually transmitted diseases around that were given to me, and I just did not care. And I just kept, just kept going down this, this dark hole in my life. And, and I kept meeting people in my life that said, you're, you're such a good person. Like, you have so much potential in life. And, you know, go back home and, and just become the man that God created you to be. And don't take orders from anybody. And go be with your daughter. Go be with her mom. Like, don't live like this. But I just could not get it together, man. I had so many resentments. Um, I remember hiding in Florida after that, and my, I called my dad, and he said, law enforcement's in our house, and they're tearing our house apart, and now the Pentagon's going to take my security clearance away from me after all these years because you're a convicted felon who's on the run, and you're a known gang member, and I'm going to lose everything that I built. So at that time, when I was, I couldn't get a job anywhere. I ended up turning myself in, which is the first thing in my life I ever did for anybody besides myself. I turned myself in in uh, early 2000. 
two guys that did the jury store with me, they testified against me on the stand. And that really threw me into a deeper spiral than I already was. And then I started to have nothing but murder on my mind. I just, how dare they, you know, these are feared men, these are big men, these are people that everybody respects, and here they are on the stand telling on me and pointing me out. Ended up doing a little less than a year for that. People were still hanging out with them, and I just, I, I couldn't wrap my head around why that would happen. And uh, I got close to somebody while I was incarcerated, and while I was planning on taking one of these guys out, I was going to meet him at a bar to talk about it because he didn't like him either. He was from a rival gang. He ended up getting murdered before we made it to the bar. I just kept having, kept having all these people around me just dying while my mom and dad are at home just crying and, and praying for me. I got this little girl out there, you know, this angel. And instead of, you know, going back home to her and her mother, I immediately went back out to other women trying to fill a void I didn't know what that void was at the time. But I was trying to fill a void, like instant gratification. Felt like I needed that. I didn't want to work for anything. I needed instant gratification for everything. If I needed a ride, I'd take a car. If I needed money, I'm going to take years. And I was getting some pretty severe consequences for my actions. And, and these weren't things that I would have done, I don't think, I'm pretty sure, if I was sober because I just wasn't that, that person. I know I started stealing at a young age, but the, to the severity that it became when I was on drugs and doing whatever that it took to get the drugs was pretty severe. 9-11 attacks. I mean, I'm going to tell you what, man. I love my father. I love my mother. I love, I love me. But you put dope in me right now, it, it doesn't matter. I'm no longer the same person. I could get, care less about any single one of them. My father was in the Pentagon during 9-11. My brother-in-law came running next door to this warehouse in Prince William County. And he said, JR, we got to go, man. He was like, the Pentagon got attacked. New York just got attacked. We got to go. The cell phone towers are down. I'm going to take you to your parents' house so we can try to get in contact with everybody. Your mom is a mess. We got to go. And I was like, man, you better get the hell out of my face, bro. He was like, what are you talking about, man? I was like, I'm not going anywhere. He said, like, we got to go to your parents' house. I said, move. I'm waiting on my dope, man. While I'm sitting there working at a carpet company, he's like, "I don't, I don't, I don't understand, man. Your dad's—he could be dead. I don't, I don't care. I, I need my cocaine. Cocaine was my life for a long time. Cocaine and women. So I ended up starting to smoke crack cocaine instead of snorting it because my nose wouldn't allow it anymore. And I hid in the backwoods, uh, Gainesville, Virginia, for over a year, just smoking crack." and sleeping with older women. And I got stuck in that world, and I was content with that world. I didn't want to go anywhere. I just had me and my pit bull, and I had dope. And uh, the woman I was sleeping with at that time, she owed these two men from Maryland, these drug dealers, money. But she didn't return to that part of the, the country in time for the drug dealers and they asked me to walk down the hill to see them. And I knew something bad was going to happen, but I was not one to run most of the time. And I went down there, and they ended up kidnapping me. And the whole scenario with that situation was just so deep, so dark, so very scary. 
They broke my ribs. They hit me with a cinder block. I defecated myself. They hit me in the head where I already had a stroke, and they dragged me to a truck. So they left the, the, the road, and they went to a dirt road, and the phone rang. And Rookie picked it up, and he was like, she's home. His cousin, the 50-year-old man with the gun, that was to me. He was like, what do you want to do with him? He was like, she's got the money, let's let him go. So I'm sitting in the back of the car. I just defecated myself. And they, uh, they turned around, and they just dropped me off. And I cleaned myself. I washed myself up. And the insanity of the disease of addiction is, you know, a mentally healthy person gets beaten almost to death, and it puts a gun to them, and they're about to go bury me somewhere in the woods, not even close to a road, to where they wouldn't have found my body for like 10 years later until they built a school or something. You know, uh, I think a mentally healthy person would have been like, okay, I'm done, I tap out. But for me, 15 minutes later, I started smoking dope again. Forgot all about it, and then I go have sex with this woman. That's the, that's the insanity to the deepest of levels, man. I left the woods after that. I left the woods after that, and I started getting closer to the city where I met um, a young woman, reunited with a young woman that I met while working at a car wash. That young, young woman was uh, young, beautiful woman, college, working hard, the kind of woman that I was dating when I was in high school, full of life laughing, listening to hip music, just living life while I'm out here in the woods, like, forgotten. So she came to visit me at one of my, my friend's house, and uh, I'm still couch hopping all over the place, drinking, still smoking crack. And then my buddy and his wife and their kids were like, okay, well, we keep getting kicked out of these places, and they weren't drug addicts. They just had a lot of love for me, and... Uh, they're down to an apartment now, and they're like, omen, like there's just no room left for you. And I'm like, here I go again. I got another pit bull. I'm like, where, do I, where, where am I going to go now? And uh, I let that pit bull go, another one. I had three of them, and because I couldn't take care of myself, I had to get rid of all of them. And this young woman that I met at the car wash that I reunited with, her mother also worked at the Pentagon. And she introduced me to her mom, and I cooked dinner for them. And she said, all right, baby, I'm going to help you get on your feet as long as you don't go into my daughter's room. And as long as you go get you a job, we're going to do everything we can to help you. And she was a God-fearing woman. And they let me stay with, with them. And it came to a point where her mom retired. She wanted to go back to Louisiana, where she's from, Covington, right outside New Orleans. And I, uh, I had to make a, a decision to leave my daughter and go down south in 2004. And that chapter is reality was tricky. And the meaning of that title is that I can move anywhere on this planet. I even wrote about it. I could actually go to the moon by myself. But if I am in my addiction and I see some strange substance floating around and I even think that it could be mind-altering, I'm going to try it. 
So I pack everything up. I had one of my homies help me pack up a Pansky truck. We drove through while detoxing, off crack and alcohol, driving across the country to Shreveport, Louisiana, where we moved. And I just knew I had it. And I was very depressed about leaving my daughter, the state, even though I wasn't around her. I still beat myself up for that and moved out there. And I'm, I'm building swimming pools. I know how to build swimming pools. I built swimming pools in homes. I built swimming pools in mountains. I know how to build me some swimming pools. And uh, I went there and I got a job immediately. And I was like, okay, this is going to be it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good. I'm going to change my life right now. And that first week on the job site, I had a young man smoking methamphetamine off a file in one truck, a foil in one truck, and two gentlemen around the corner smoking crack cocaine. And they worked for the company. I struggled the entire time I was in Louisiana. I was lost in the city under bridges. My girlfriend would find me, baffled, not knowing what happened. Never told her I was a drug addict. She knew I was a horrible drinker, and that's all she needed to know as far as I was concerned. Nobody knew that I was a drug addict. They just thought I was that bad of an alcoholic. So we moved to Tucson in 2006, and I stopped doing drugs. And in my mind, I justified me doing good because I was only drinking. So I got a job at a pool company out here. Started cleaning pools for prominent people in, in southern Arizona, up in the mountains, meeting these, these famous people. Uh, from the looks of me, they, they weren't sure they wanted me in their backyard. You know, corn rolls and just walk different, wearing Timberland boots. But it, it took some time, and once they, they, they saw my work ethic, they never wanted me to leave. They're like, man, he's the guy. But I still struggled with pain in my head. I'd still never been to the hospital. So I deserve, after cleaning 75 pools a week, to take my little pool truck to Circle K and get me a drink. Cleaning pools, then I get in this bad auto accident here in town. So I, I go get checked out at the neurologist, and they said, man, it looks like you had a stroke. I'm like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? And he was like, this didn't just happen from the accident. Like, there's a mark on your brain over here. It looks like you had a stroke from a blunt force trauma to the head. I was like, wow, that makes sense. And he's like, what? I said, I got hit with the police MAC light back in 98, and the hospital just sent me away because I was gang affiliated. And he was like, what? I ended up having uh, post-concussion syndrome for a year, over a year, and I had a migraine for over a year while cleaning swimming pools. And then I uh, decided I wanted to become a chef. So I went to the Art Institute, and I excelled. I did so well that the Master Chef opened the doors to an opportunity at the Ritz-Carlton in Marana, and I went and I sat down with them, and I was hired on the spot. So not only was I not out there using and abandoned homes in Louisiana and going to the bathroom in buckets while getting bit by mosquitoes. I was like Chef Joel. Like, I'm not a cook anymore. So let me just jump in here real quick. Yeah, I, yeah. I know that you have a very strong faith. At any point throughout this period of time, has God revealed himself to you in any way? I mean, looking back, we can, we can all say, yeah, 100 times. But I'm at that point exactly are, are, are right. You, That's are, funny you said that okay. because this is where it's at. Okay. So I'm driving to the Ritz-Carlton in the morning. So I'm driving through that area in Marana, 
and it's just all peaceful and serene. The sun's coming up, and you can feel the presence in the desert. Then I start going towards the mountains in the morning. And the hotel, this resort, is just in the mountain. Like there's a huge slide coming from the mountains, and it's going all the way around into a restaurant that's by the water. And while I was setting up every morning, I heard somebody playing the flute. And I, I remember walking out to overlook the pool in the restaurant down by the desert. And I, I opened the door. There's a gentleman out there playing the flute on top of the peak of the mountain. It was a Native American man. And I had a spirit visit me when I was by myself at the Grand Canyon while I was reading the back of a picture of the Native Americans that lived there for hundreds of years. And I welcomed that spirit into the room, and I took pictures because I couldn't see it with my own eyes, but I've been able to feel these things my whole life, and I know what a, a bad presence feels like. So I welcomed the spirit into the room, and I took about seven pictures of the room while it was close to me, and it definitely revealed itself. You know, it's like nothing in the picture, nothing in the picture but my feet, my socks, and then you got a crack in the wall, and all of a sudden there's orbs everywhere, and then it manifests over me. I got my wife pregnant that night, our first time. I've been with her five years. So then I'm off to the Ritz-Carlton. I'm doing my thing. I'm a student at the Art Institute. I'm still cleaning pools on the side. I'm starting to create my own little pool business on the side for the same people that didn't want me in their room, in their backyard, and now they're saying, please, if you start your own company, please, I'll go with you. You're talking multi-millionaires going, Joel, don't. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll jump on your ship and we'll do that. And uh, life was really amazing. I, I wasn't drinking. Then I got a DUI. At that point, I had about $72,000 in the bank from the car accident. And I was so ashamed of myself from getting a DUI. Everything that I went through in my life and becoming a chef and, and having a child on the way and still being depressed about my daughter in Virginia, beating myself up for that. On February 8th, 2011 was the DUI and that night was the night that I said, you know what, I don't care no more, I quit. And I walked away from my pregnant wife, our beautiful home in Vail being a chef at the Ritz-Carlton, a student at the Art Institute, and I, I quit all of it, and I walked away, and I went to a relative's house, and I put alcohol away after 17 years, and I became a full-blown methamphetamine addict. So how long was this, how long did that last? Two and a half years, I was yeah. away from my family. Remember the chef calling me when I was drinking? He's like, what's up, buddy, you coming in? I was like, no. He's like, you all right? I said, no, and I just hung up the phone, never talked to him again. Didn't go back to my wife's house until I was terrified of the demonic entities that were coming after me, inhumans. And uh, I would cry for help, and she was so scared of me that she would push my buttons into trying to get me to get help. And I snapped, and I almost murdered her with a machete, and they sent me to a mental institution. I stayed in psych hospitals for uh, off and on for two and a half years, those two and a half years. And I would leave and I would commit crimes, small petty crimes to me, small petty crimes. 
they would send me to uh, Pima County Jail and then put me in a mental unit there and then they would send me back to a psych hospital. Then I'd go to Salvation Army. Didn't know it was a rehab at all. Had no idea. Thought it was just people ringing a bell during Thanksgiving time. I go in there and there's 85 men walking around, tattoos on their face, smiling, tucked in collared shirts. And I'm like, what the hell is this? This is weird. And they're all smiling. We're like, God is good, brother. And I'm like, what is wrong with y'all, man? And uh, I stayed there a month. It was a six-month program. I stayed there a month. I went back out. I relapsed. I got locked up again. I went back to a psych hospital again. I got locked back up again. And then I went back to the Salvation Army in 2012. And I just took off again after a week. And I went for another whole year on methamphetamine after that. And it's the most disturbing drug. You can't understand it unless you've lived that life, how demonic it is. And I was so angry all the time. And I was such a pervert. And I... My whole life was based around sex. And if it wasn't that, it was revenge. And I have this woman in town that has my two children that has the county looking for me. And I was so weird that I would, like, get behind the police. I would chase them. You know, I would run the streets with axes and machetes. My uncles didn't even want me in their house, and they were pretty weird. It got to a point that I just didn't want to live anymore. And uh, I talked to my dealer. He was about to do a lot of time in prison, and he's like, if they come and get me, I'm, I'm going to take my life. And I was like, I'm right with you, brother. I'm going to take mine, too. And he did. He, he, he took his life. I went back to my wife's house, and I just wanted to pick up some things so I could barter because I don't want to steal from people anymore. So I was kind of getting better, even though it sounds weird. I wasn't robbing people anymore. I was actually working for the money. And... Uh, I went to go pack a, a, a suitcase full of clothes and like old coins and baseball cards and uh, tools, and she wouldn't let me. And she, she started pushing me with her words, and she knew I was going to snap, and I snapped, and she had the police on the phone. And I tried to leave, and I remember her getting in front of me and not letting me leave, and I threw her against the wall, and I went out into the street, and her mom ran out because her mom had to sell both her houses to help take care of my family. And I threatened to, get, to kill her mom with a machete. And then I went out. I started walking down to the, towards the desert. And I saw the police, law enforcement, were starting to shut the neighborhood down. And it started raining on me. And I started crying. And I put a paintball mask on. I put a hoodie on, baseball gloves, tied my Timberland boots up. And I grabbed a machete. And it was me and the cops. And I wanted them to kill me. I was going suicide by cop. My mother-in-law drove her truck up on the curb. And she just asked me to go get close to God. She said, sweetie, just go. And they took me to a psych hospital. And um, I got released two years to the day that I got that DUI. So I did 730 days of straight methamphetamine. And I went back to the Salvation Army. They, they took me to a, a house for people that suffer from mental illness in the middle of town by the U of A. And I went there, they, they picked me up from the, a liaison picked me up from the psych hospital, took me to this home. I got 30 people walking around asking me questions. I'm medicated, more than I've ever been medicated in my life because of my actions. And I was paranoid. I don't want anybody around. I don't want to answer no questions. 
And I was seeing triple because they medicated me so much. I never seen triple in my life, even when I tried. So I walk out into the community around U of A, seeing triple with a pillowcase with my belongings from a psych hospital. And I find this girl's apartment hours later. And I get high again that night. But I didn't even get high. It just made me feel better. And I went to my parents' house. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I knocked on their door, and I said, I tap out, I quit, I'm done. And I tapped out. And three weeks later, Salvation Army finally said, you know what, we'll let you in. But they made me sweat for three weeks to see if I was going to back out, because I already AWOL twice. And on March 1st, 2013, I walked to Salvation Army. I went through those doors that third time. I got on my knees in that chapel, and I said, you know what, God, I'm getting out of my own way. I'm done. And I quit. I retired from the lifestyle. I gave it all to God. I surrendered, and I got a sponsor in 30 days, like they suggested. I worked eight hours a day. I went, and I did whatever they suggested. And I, I completed that program. Very difficult to do, but it wasn't for me because I was willing to do anything it took that time. It was retirement mode. I, I retired. After 19 years of putting chemicals in my body and harming other individuals, I retired. And at the age of 34, I gave my life to God. And my wife came back to me. And now I have five children. I have a five-year-old son that was just um, had a birthday on September 11th, which is cool. because He has two grandparents that worked at the Pentagon on September 11th. I got a six-year-old son that almost died at birth when I was two years clean, but I didn't even think about using. And here he is playing Little League Baseball. I got a nine-year-old son who was diagnosed with cancer at the age of five. He's tremendous. Uh, he's a genius. He loves playing basketball, and he's phenomenal at it. Phenomenal at it. And uh, I have a 12-year-old son who's a model. He's doing commercials, and he plays saxophone. And he's a lot like me, which is scary, but I'm here for it and here for, for all of them. And I know my daughter today. She's in Virginia. She'll be 22 in uh, two weeks. And she met all her brothers. She knows who I am today. She may not know who I used to be, but that's why I wrote this book. I want her to know who I used to be. And when she's ready, it's available for her. That was a huge reason why I wrote this book, was for her to know before I died, she at least will have a documented timeline on who her father used to be and who I am today. And uh, I'm an advocate. In, in this behavioral health field, I sponsor guys. I'm part of the 12-step fellowship. Worked in mental hospitals. Cool thing is, I worked for four years at the psych hospital where I was a patient at, and they would drag me in there in handcuffs. And next thing you know, I'm in there working with little kids, you know, from five years old to 17 years old, just being an advocate, being a friend for the day, and then working across the hallway with their parent. Uh, and then I got into this field on the rehab side in 2017. I, I transitioned from psych hospitals to more recovery. And I've been doing this ever since. And I've been working here at Buena Vista for 13 months. I wake up every day to honor God, clean house, and to serve others in our community and uh and I'm just loving life. I can't believe I'm a, a published author. I can't believe I'm a married man. I can't believe I had five amazing children and that I'm sitting in this room with you guys and that 
after this, I'm going to go back onto the milieu and I'm going to talk to individuals that met me years ago in my addiction that see me now. And they're in shock that I am who I am today. You know, it's just a testament to recovery. It's a testament to God. I mean, you're, you're a powerful guy, Joel. You know, when I met you um, back when we met, four, you know, four years ago, I fell in love with you right away, man. Your passion was, you, you inspired me. You know, like seeing that, seeing an individual like yourself who's been through what you've been through and the way people take to you, bro, how you can get through to people, like that's, you don't see a whole lot of that, dude. You just really don't. You know, like you, you're, you have the light. You have the gift. People listen to you. People love you. They gravitate towards you. And you can, you can, you can block those AMAs or, you know, the, the dude that's ready to pop off on a unit. It, it, you can do that. You have that gift, you know, and that's what I've always just admired about you, man, the way people um, are attracted to you and the way they, the way you make people feel, you know, it's always been, I, I, I've loved you from day one, brother, you know, like, you. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm glad that you're here, man, and, you know, hopefully we can keep this thing moving and, Amen. you know, we have a, a friendship that will continue well beyond Buena Vista. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you for uh, your time today, brother. Um, again, I love you. I'm grateful to know you. Grateful to be on the same team as you. And um, thank you, brother. Right.